podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Good boys and girls, two for the podcast on Thursday, April 20th, motoring through April. And we've got sunshine again today, so that's nice. Hope you all had a pleasant day yesterday. Nice to be back. And nice to have had some good games last night. So, Champions League last night, Inter Milan 3, Benfica 3. Inter went into the game with the 2-0 lead from the first leg. Barella put them one up. That was kind of tie over, but credit to Benfica, they didn't give up at all. Arznes scores on 38 to pull them back in, but then Latura Martinez scores on 65 to make it 4 1 on aggregate. Hacking Correa comes off the bench, he makes it 5 1 on aggregate. And again, you've got to give Benfica credit here. Antonio Silva scores on 86, <clears throat> Patar Musa scores on 95. They kept going right to the end, but Inter did get quite sloppy once they had the 3-1 advantage. Benfica also hit the post. Um, David Neres after a poor mistake by Brozovic. But Inter find the way through, and credit to them. They've done exceptionally well to reach this stage of the competition. For Benfica, it looks like they'll win the Portuguese League this season. They've gotten to the quarterfinals of the Champions League. No matter what way you slice it, that is an, a very good season. And I think they can grow from this. In the other game last night, City go to Bayern with the 3-0 advantage from the first leg. Bayern gave it a go. They caused City some problems. I thought the two wingers, Sané and Coleman, had real moments in the game where they opened City up. But unfortunately for Bayern, Dale Upamecano decided to follow up one of the worst performances I've ever seen in a Champions League knockout game from the first leg with maybe the worst performance I've ever seen in a Champions League knockout game in this one. He was absolutely atrocious. He got sent off after 17 minutes after pulling down Haaland and was spared by the fact that Haaland had gone too early on his run and was offside. He managed to get himself booked about five minutes later. No, it was probably 15 minutes later. Um, came out to close down a shot with his arms behind his back and then for some reason threw his hand out and handled the ball. Penalty given, Haaland blasted over the bar. Upamecano continued to make mistakes, but Bayern continued to press and try and find a way to break City down. 56 minutes in, Kingsley Coleman does brilliantly, dances through two or three City defenders, whips the ball across the ground, right in front of goal. No Bayern player gets a leg on it. John Stones is at the back post and just humps it clear in the general direction of Haaland. The ball breaks to De Bruyne. 
He plays it back to Haaland. Upa Meccano tries to stand him up and just falls over. Haaland runs in and scores. There's just no accounting for that level of incompetence from Upa Meccano. And when Theo Hernandez comes back, whenever that might be, Matthias Delict and Lucas Hernandez, sorry, Lucas Hernandez, not Theo. <clears throat> when Lucas Hernandez comes back from the ACL injury, Delict and Hernandez needs to be their centre back pairing. Because Upa Meccano just, he's not, he's not good enough for the level that Bayern want to play at. Maybe in time he can be. And maybe if they move to a back three and play him on the right with Delict in the middle and Hernandez on the left, maybe in that situation you can develop him and work on the fundamentals and work on his timing and his judgment. But he is a calamity right now. Um, Byron did get one back in the tie. Uh, Joshua Kimmich from the penalty spot after Sadio Mane's cross was handled. Glenn Hoddle on commentary. One of the most one-eyed, biased commentary performances I've heard uh, tried to make out it wasn't a penalty. It was very blatantly a penalty. Um, it was in- insignificant anyway. But Kimmich scores 1-1 in the night, 4-1 to City on aggregate, and City strolled through. In the semi-finals, City will take on Real Madrid. Real took a 2-0 lead to Stamford Bridge where they won 2-0, without ever really needing to try. It was the easiest possible game for them. Frank Lampard, in a Champions League knockout game, a must-win game, 2-0 down, at home, sent out a team, with Chalaba Silva Fafana as a back three, James and Cucurella as wingbacks, that's fine. Enzo and Kovacic in midfield. That's fine. And then he played Kante and Gallagher behind Kai Havertz. My assumption is he thought he might be able to press the Real backline and cause them some trouble and try and create turnovers high up the field. But Real read it early and just didn't prick about, just bypassed them with great ease and efficiency. It was one of the stranger teams I've ever seen, because Kai Havertz isn't a striker. They use him as a striker, but he's not a striker. Kai's an attacking midfielder. So what you've basically done is you've sent out a team with five defenders, five midfielders, and no forward players at all. And then look confused as to why it didn't work. So Chelsea are out, their season's over. They just need to get through the end, finish off their league campaign and accept that this is maybe the most embarrassing season any big six club has ever had. When you factor in the amount of money they spent on players, the amount of players they bought in, the level of players that they've brought in, absolutely tremendous players have been brought into the club. The fact that they sacked Thomas Tuchel a week after the first window Spent a fortune to get Graham Potter and have since sacked him and brought back Frank Lampard, who is the worst manager in the Premier League. And I know people often think that that's me being harsh. That's not me being harsh. That is just 
what Frank is. He is the worst manager in the Premier League. He's dreadful. And if we take a look at Frank and what he's done over his last 17 or 18 games as a Premier League manager, or as, as a manager in general, we should say. 14 defeats, two draws, and one win. Now, as I look at this on Twitter, I note the very first comment is from a fella called Craig. Top four and a cup final with a youth team. And the squad he built won the Champions League the next season. Kept an abysmal, potless Everton up from relegation. This is the type of brainwashing that takes place around managers like Frank Lampard. Top four and a cup final with a youth team. So this is, of course, the 1920 Chelsea season. Now, bear in mind, in the 1819 season, Chelsea finished third and won the Europa League. So, not like they were abysmal the season before. Eden Hazard is the only player of note who left the club. David Louise left and a bunch of youngsters that weren't going to play anybody, play anyway. But Eden Hazard's the only notable player that leaves. But they have Christian Pulisic coming in, having signed him in the January. They get to keep Kovacic because they'd had him on loan. It was a loophole in the transfer ban that they had. They bring Mason Mount back from a loan. They bring Tammy Abraham back from a loan. And they bring Fakayo Tamore back from a loan. And I would argue that having those four players is better than having just Eden Hazard, who, lest we forget, would just take seasons off and not bother for Chelsea. You look at his time at Chelsea, there's multiple horrendous seasons there. It's why he's not ever in any discussion for me among the great Premier League players. Most talented? Absolutely. But he had seasons that just eliminate you from that conversation. So let's look at these this youth team that apparently Frank was working with. Kepa made 41 appearances. Kepa's the world's most expensive goalkeeper. Hardly a youth player. Antonio Rudiger, who the following season Chelsea fans would try and convince us was the best centre-back in the world, a German international, hardly a youth player. Marcus Alonso, not a youth player. Andreas Christensen had come through the academy, but I don't think you could logically make a case that at 23-24 he was a youth player. Jorginho, 39 games. Kante, 26. Barkley, uh, 31. Tammy Abraham, 47 games. Now, Tammy was 22 starting the season. Not a kid. But you could make an argument that he's one of the players this imbecile is talking about. Willian, 
47 appearances. Pedro, 23. Willie Caballero, 14. Kurt Zuma, 43. Mateo Kovacic, 47. Olivier Giroud, 25. Mason Mount was 20 starting the season. I will accept that you could argue, wrongly, but you could argue that he was a youth player. But let's not forget that before that season, Mason Mount had two full seasons of first-team football under his belt. One for Vitas Arnhem and one for Derby County. It's a step up, obviously, from those levels. But he wasn't some inexperienced kid. The same goes for Tommy. Tommy had been knocking around for years. And before he got that start with Chelsea that year, he'd had a full season with Bristol, a full season with Swansea, and a full season with Aston Villa. He had well over 100 games under his belt. Anyway, Callum Hudson-Odoi, 33 games. We'll take him as a youth player. That's again, that's fine. Uh, Christian Pulisic, young, but certainly not a youth player. They paid 60 million for him. He played, um, 35 games, 34 games. Mitchie Batshuayi, not a youth player. Uh, Reese James, again, happy to accept him as one of these youth players, but he'd had a full season, uh, the previous year with Wigan. And there's another one that hadn't been in the squad the year before. So it's not just Mount, Tamori and Tammy, it's Reese James as well. And Pulisic. Uh, Cesar Aspilicueta, not a youth player. Tamori, we'll, we'll take him. Uh, he, he can be included. He'd had the full season with Derby. He'd also had a full season with Hull. And he'd had a loan at Brighton. But we'll take him, we'll count him. So what are we up to now? Four? Emerson, certainly not a youth player. Billy Gilmore barely played. Tino Andrin and Brogia made one appearance each. Same for Ian Matson. So who, who's this youth team that he managed? What is this youth team? Reese James, Mason Mount and Tammy Abraham, because Tamori was only in the seat, the team for the first half of the season, then he was out. Where's this youth team? That's a team of experienced pros who'd gotten to a European final and won it the year before and finished third. That's a better squad than they had the year before. He's celebrating them losing a cup final. And let's remember, they didn't just lose the cup final. They bottled the cup final against an inferior Arsenal team when Mikel Arteta just outmanaged them. So the next line then is the squad he built won the Champions League the next season. Okay. They brought in Zayic. They brought in Timo Werner. They brought in Ben Chilwell. They brought in Kai Havertz. They brought in uh, Eduard Mendy. They brought in Thiago Silva. Frank was sacked on the 25th of January that season. Chelsea at that point had played 19 league games. And after 19 league games, he had them sitting in ninth. And they had lost five of their previous eight with only two wins. If anybody thinks they were going to win the Champions League because of him, or that it was because of the team he built that won the Champions League, they are absolutely fooling themselves. 
Frank was in no way responsible for them winning the Champions League. Atletico Madrid would have wiped the floor with them. Quite simply put, Atletico would have destroyed them had that been the the matchup with Frank in charge. The Champions League final, they had an awful lot of luck. An awful lot of luck in that final. And there's no world in which he's responsible for any of that. As for keeping up an abysmal, potless Everton, they were 16th when he took over and they finished in 16th place. So he didn't do anything. What is it that we're meant to to applaud? Frank Lampard is the worst manager in the Premier League. It's not a conversation. It's just a fact. He's been Chelsea manager now since the 6th of April. In that time, Chelsea have played two league games. They lost to Wolves and then lost at home to Brighton. They've played two Champions League games and Real Madrid beat them comfortably in both without breaking sweat. Before that, he was the Everton manager. And let's take a look at those last 13 games when he was with Everton. So he was sacked on the 23rd of January. So they lost to West Ham, who are poor. They lost at home to Southampton, who are dreadful. They got walloped by Brighton. They drew at Man City. That's a good result. They lost to Wolves. Wolves hadn't beaten anybody in weeks. They lost to Bournemouth twice, once in the league, once in the League Cup. Bournemouth were an abomination at the time. They also lost to Manchester United in the FA Cup in this run. They lost at home to Leicester, who were awful. They drew at Fulham. They beat Crystal Palace. They lost to Newcastle, lost to Spurs, lost to United. Their only win is a 3-0 win over Crystal Palace. His only win, rather. A 3-0 win over Crystal Palace on the 22nd of October. That's the last time Frank Lampard managed a game of football. That's abysmal. That's absolutely abysmal. Whatever way you look at it, he's not a good manager. There's absolutely no way you can look at him and call him a good manager. He is a PE teacher. He tells lads to go out and express themselves. There's no tactical input. There's no player development. He might get some credit for Mount and James and Tamore. That's just natural development, natural progression at those ages. Players get better. That's what happens when you've got talented players getting games. The Everton team he left behind was worse than the Everton team he inherited. And when he left Everton, he left them 19th. He inherited them 16th. 
and left them in 19th. And Sean Dyche is a hell of a job on his hands to try and keep them up. But if we just look at him from a transfer point of view, let's look at what he's done. Tarkovsky, he's a decent centre-back for sure. He hasn't been great this season. Dwight McNeil hasn't been great this season. Onana's a really good player. Mopay was a bizarre buy. James Garner couldn't get a look in. I didn't understand bringing back Adrissagana Gay at his age, but he's done okay. Uh, Jakovic has been a non-factor. He's the backup goalkeeper. Look at the transfers he made as Chelsea manager. Look at what he did with those players. Hakim Zajic, flop. Timo Werner, flop. Ben Chilwell hasn't set the world alight, but he's been okay at times. Kai Havertz, he scored a winner in a Champions League final, and that eliminates him from being called a flop. But if he hadn't, flop. Edward Mendy, they got a good 18 months out of him, and he's been poor since. Thiago Silva's been hugely overrated, but he's done all right considering he was free. But he hasn't spent money well. Like, Frank just hasn't spent money well. At all. So, what's he hanging his hat on as a manager? Because it can't be anything that he's done. Look at what he, look at Derby. Look at what he did with Derby. Took them over in sixth, spent a fortune, upped the wage bill to unmanageable levels, promised them champ, uh, Premier League football, didn't deliver and ran away, and left them facing financial ruin. Now, he wasn't the biggest contributor to that, but he was a sizable contributor to that. And he didn't improve Derby at all, despite having had a much better squad than what Gary Rowett worked with the year before, because he was able to use his name to get Mount on loan, to get Tamori on loan, to get Harry Wilson on loan from Liverpool. Frank is a dreadful manager. And that is just how it is. He did an okay job at Derby, a bad job at Chelsea, a dreadful job at Everton, and he just looks like he hasn't a clue what's going on now that he's back at Chelsea. His career win record from 189 games is 180, drawn 42, lost 67. Bear in mind, he took over a top six championship team and a top three Premier League team. So it's not like he's been playing with bad teams for the majority. He managed Everton for less games than either Derby or Chelsea. So he can't lay claim to any notion that the Everton run is dragging him down. He was 42% at Derby. The Chelsea uh, term, when he took over a really good squad, that is what's holding him up. Otherwise, he'd be in the 30s, which is not very good. It is, however, better than Duncan Ferguson. Um... Tuesday night, Forest Green nil, Fleetwood nil. So to update you on Duncan Ferguson's career record as it is. With Forest Green, played 15, won once, drawn three, lost 11. 
6.67% win percentage. At Everton, he won one of four, drew three, 25%. Overall, 20 games, two wins, six draws, 12 defeats, a 10% win rate for Big Dunk. Now, he will most likely see out the rest of the season. And for Forest Green, that is three games. They are relegated. There is no point in them changing the manager now. Their last three games. Away to Cheltenham. Cheltenham are 17th. You'd expect Cheltenham to get something on their home turf against Forest Green. Then they're home to Oxford United. This is an opportunity to win. Oxford aren't great. They're 20th in the division. But Oxford are desperate for wins because they've got to try and stay above the bottom four because four go down. So that's going to be tough for Forest Green. And then they play Cambridge away on the final day. And there's a chance that going into that game, Cambridge need the win to stay up. And Cambridge have won three of their last five. I would bet that Forest Green don't win any of their last three games. Which will make Big Dunk's managerial record the stuff of true legend. So... Obviously, obviously, I'll be keeping you updated. Uh, There is something funny to me about the fact that Frank and Big Dunk might well be the two worst managers in England who had, in Dunk's case, a decent playing career. Obviously, in Frank's case, a great playing career. But of, of those that played at the highest level and have big names, that they're the two worst, it is amusing to me. And, of course, there's some lovely Everton symmetry because Big Dunk was the caretaker manager for one game, a game that he lost. I should point out he actually managed five games with Everton, won one, drew three, and lost one. Uh, He lost that game before Frank took over. And when Frank took over, he told Duncan to take a hike. Uh, Yeah, wonderful stuff. We have Europa Conference League and Europa League games tonight. Quarterfinal second legs. Um, starting off in the Europa League, all 8 pm kickoffs. Roma versus Feyenoord. Feyenoord hold a 1 0 lead from the first leg. That game is in Rome. That one should be good. Union St. Gelos, 1. Bayer Leverkusen, 1. 1 1 after the first leg. I think this is going to be a really good game. Leverkusen under Xabi Alonso are playing great football. And Union St. Gelosa from the, the Brighton Pyramid, owned by Tony Bloom. They've got a number of really exciting young players there. And a couple that Brighton fans should probably be keeping an eye on. Because they're either on loan from Brighton or they're likely to find their way to Brighton. So Simon Adringa is the one who's in on loan. Uh, he has been phenomenally good this season. 14 goals and I think 13 assists in all competitions. I I think when Matoma eventually moves on from Brighton when they get the big offer for him, I think that's who they will look to bring in to replace him. They already own him. He's in their system. It's a very easy one, but I think I think he's the one likely to replace Matoma. 
And Usama Elazozi is a name to keep an eye on. A Moroccan underage midfielder, born and raised in the Netherlands. They signed him from Emmen in the summer. I think he will end up at Brighton within 18 months. Really good defensive midfielder, good on the ball, strong in the tackle. I think he ends up at Brighton. It wouldn't surprise me if Brighton also go and look at his brother. His brother doesn't play within their network. He's at Dordrecht. He's a good centre-back, a ball-playing centre-back. But, um, yeah, keep an eye on, on those two if you decide that that's the game you want to watch tonight. I assume most people will go with tonight's big game, which is Sevilla versus Manchester United. 2-2 from the first leg. United had that game and the tie wrapped up. Managed to throw it away. Now they face a very tricky second leg without a number of players who are out injured. And I think they've just made life very, very difficult for themselves. They will be without Martinez, Van de Beek, Varane. McTominay's a major doubt. Phil Jones is out. Garnacho's out. Obviously Greenwood is out. Um, it wouldn't surprise me if United ended up out of the competition tonight. Harry Maguire is is capable of single-handedly torpedoing their season. Last game then is Sporting at home to Juve. Juve have a 1-0 lead from the first leg. Sporting outplayed them in Turin. Didn't have Manuel Ugarte. He's back. That one should be a good one as well. In the Conference League, Two games at 5.45, two at 8pm. They should all be at 5.45. I think it would give a bit more shine to this competition of all the games at the same time and separate to when the Europa League games are on. But um Fiorentina versus Lech Poznan. Fiorentina are 4-1 up from the first leg. Expect them to breeze through. Alkmaar against Anderlecht. Anderlecht hold a 2-0 lead as they go into Alkmaar. But... That's not, it's not inconceivable that Alkmaar could pull that back. A lot of talent in that Anderlecht team. So if I was watching one of the early games, because the other one's pretty much over and done, like it's, it's just really hard to see Lech Poznan pulling back a three goal deficit against Fiorentina, especially considering Fiorentina have been in very good form. This is the game I'd watch, uh, Alkmaar versus Anderlecht. And there's just, there's a lot of talent there. Um, I highlighted them the last day, but just in case you missed that one. Bert Verbruggen, the young Dutch goalkeeper, super talented. Zeno de Bast, the young Belgian centre-back, really, really good. One that I think is going to play for a top club within the next two years. Marco Canna is a holding midfielder that I do like, but he has stagnated quite a bit. And they've been using him more as a centre-back, and I don't like him as much there. I think he's a good number six. I think he's a, an average centre-back. Yari Vercheren, super talented playmaking midfielder. Definitely one with a big future. Surprised he's actually still there. Thought he would have moved on by now. Uh, Andreas Dreyer, people might remember him from a short spell at Brighton. Uh, he was at Mittelian then and did really well for them in the Champions League. Anderlecht have picked him up. He's still only 24. And I think they're hoping that he can rediscover some of his best form 
and potentially go on and earn a move elsewhere. Amadou Diawara made his name with Bologna, went to Napoli, went to Roma. It didn't really work out from there. He's gone to Anderlecht and he's been good for them. So a lot of talent in that Anderlecht team. And the, the three I'd say just to keep a close eye on, Vicheron, Zabast and Verbruggen, the keeper. Um, they alone make that game worth a watch to me. Uh, West Ham against Ghent. That's one all from the first leg. You'd fancy West Ham to progress. Ghent are not great. They're fourth in the Belgian Pro, Belgian Pro League. Um, West Ham at home should, should get through. And then Nice versus Basel. This one ended 2-2 in the first leg. Uh, really didn't understand why Kefren Turan played left wing, but hopefully he plays in more of a midfield role in this one. I fancy Nice at home to get the job done. So that is what we have tonight. We will now take a break. When we go come back, we will have listeners' questions. I think there's four or five of them today. And then we'll do the gossip and we'll be done. Nice and quick and easy. No drinkles, so I'm trying to keep things as as succinct as possible and as, as cadenced as possible because I don't have an editor at the minute. So if I make a mistake, it just becomes a far bigger ordeal because I have to try and explain to Nina Kauser, who's filling in for Guy editing this, where I've made a mistake, so I have to write things down, and I don't like to write stuff down. I'd rather just let it flow. Whereas Guy at least listens and notes things. So, yeah, back after this. The Two-Footed Podcast is brought to you by EPLindex.com and our presenting sponsor, Liberty Shield. Liberty Shield is a VPN provider. A virtual privacy network allows you to go online, change your location, access things you're geo-blocked from while keeping your data safe. So, as an example, if you are a UK expat and want access to BBC iPlayer to watch Match of the Day or ITV Hub or all four, but you get that message that says this content is not available in your location, a Liberty Shield VPN gets you around that block, allows you to watch whatever you want on those services while also keeping your data safe. And it goes further than that. It allows you to open up Netflix's entire library by just changing your IP address. Liberty Shield is the number one rated VPN provider on Trustpilot with five-star ratings across the board. So go to libertyshield.com right now, use the code EPL25 and get either the hardware package or the software package. The hardware package is a router that you plug into your existing router and any item you want to change the IP address on, be it your phone or your television, you connect that to the new Liberty Shield router. All other items can remain connected to your existing router. There's also a software package, which is instantly downloadable to your device and you can get using straight away. Again, libertyshield.com, EPL25 for 25% off at checkout. We're also brought to you by Home of Hopcroft, a giftware and homeware company located in Scotland, but shipping worldwide. Check out homeofhopcroft.co.uk and do check out the EPL Index and Anfield Index shops, which you'll find on Etsy. Use the codes EPL10 or RED10 for 10% off at checkout. And lastly, do remember to check out a Tad Predictable hosted by Tadiwa. That podcast is on this feed before every Premier League match week. 
and then the EPL Roundtable hosted by Kevin DeVries on its own EPL Roundtable feed. So just search EPL Roundtable in your podcast device. And that's out after every match week. Now, on with the show. Right, welcome back. So, we'll move on to listeners' questions. So, the first ones come from Sports Lens. Uh, he has three. Why are Brighton and Brentford so successful? What are they doing to overcome the odds? They're relying heavily on analytics and investing in their recruitment process, not just in actual recruitment. Brighton and Brentford both spend a lot of money to ensure that they have the best people finding the best players for them. One way to do that is to have those people located off-site. Tony Bloom, through Star Lizard, employs his analysts, employs a number of video analysts and data analysts, and they will watch a game. The video analysts know exactly what they're looking for, And they will collate their own stats on the game rather than relying just on, you know, third parties. From there, the data analysts will plug it in and and see what they find. And making decisions this way based on the algorithms that they have specifically created for themselves is, is what works. They take calculated risks. And they've also got really good player development. Like when they bring a player in, they're not going to rush him into the first team. The prime example of this, I think, is Alexis McAllister at Brighton. Look at his career. He joins Brighton in 2019, has two different loan spells back in Argentina because they don't want to to rush things. They bring him in, they loan him back. They brought him from, bought him from Argentinos Juniors, loaned him back. Then they brought him over and they worked with him for a couple of weeks, had a look at where he was and then they loaned him to Boca Juniors. And what that did was it got him used to playing in big pressure games because every Boca Juniors game is a big pressure game. And it's a higher standard for him. Boca Juniors, by the way, about as Irish as they come. Look it up. Um, Then they bring him back, and it's a really slow burn. In 1920, he plays nine league games for them, because he spends part of that season, obviously, on loan with Boca. The next season, he plays only 21 league games. He's in and out of the team. And then last season is where he really gets his opportunity. He's been at the club over two years before he really gets an opportunity because they were bringing him along, not wanting to rush things, not wanting to kind of fast track it or force it because that was what they recognized he needed. Whereas someone like Evan Ferguson, he needed that fast track. He needed to get into the first team early. So I just think they're really clever. They don't have a one-size-fits-all approach. 
to every player. Like even this season, I and many others have lauded the performances of Levi Colwell. And yesterday I saw someone put Levi Colwell in the Premier League team of the season. Levi Colwell has played only 10 Premier League games this year. Only 15 games in all competition. Because Brighton recognised that he wasn't ready to play every game this year. They realised that physically it would be too taxing on him to play every game. So they've brought him along slowly. And it means that next season, wherever it is that he is, he will be ready for a bigger physical load. I just think it's really clever. And, you know, Brentford have done the same thing. Brentford in the summer did what I would view as good business. But what a lot of people have said is, oh, well, their business hasn't worked out because the players haven't established themselves yet. But Brentford don't buy players for one season. They buy them for two or three or four seasons with a view to then selling them on. So Aaron Hickey arrived from Bologna, nominally a left-back. They've played him at right-back. Now, he has played quite regularly. Has it been the best Aaron Hickey season? No. But has it been the best thing for his development? Absolutely. Because he's adding another string to his bow. He's working constantly on his right side. And come the end of this season, Aaron Hickey is going to be entirely two-footed and entirely comfortable on both sides. And that's important for them. It's important for his national team. And it's mostly important for the player. Keen Lewis Potter, brought in from Hull, really talented player, was coming off an excellent season last year with 13 goals in 48 games. His first season playing um, no, sorry, his second season playing at the championship level. He made his breakthrough in the championship. They got relegated. He did great in League One and then did really well in the championship last year. They've brought him in. He's only played 13 times in all competitions, only 10 times in the Premier League. He's only scored one goal. So it'd be easy to look at it and say, oh, well, that hasn't worked. But you're looking at the small picture. The big picture for Brighton is that they have, or for Brentford rather, they have him in their team. They have him in their squad. He's adapting to the Brentford way of playing, which is quite physically demanding. And they're building him up so that next season, if, say, Brian and Boma was to leave, Keane Lewis Potter is the natural fit to come into that team and be ready to contribute all season long and not risk breaking down with injury issues. Another example is Mikel Damsgaard. He hasn't played every game. He hasn't had a set position in the team. He's played 22 games all season, 19 in the Premier League. But again, it's fits and starts. The physical demands they're putting on him are more than the physical demands he had at Sampdoria or at Nordensian. They're also working with converting him from a winger into more of a midfield player and getting him used to playing in more central areas. So that takes time. And then in January, they brought in Kevin Shade from uh, Freiburg, another super talented young forward. 
He's only played eight times in the league so far. But again, he wasn't just signed for this season. And they're looking at it and thinking, right, we have Mbomo, we have Tony, we have Wissa. If everybody's fit, that's probably our front three. But the ideal is that all of them leave for big money. And now we're going to have Lewis Potter and Shade as those automatic ready-to-go wingers. So we'll have to replace only one in Tony, and we'll have plenty of money. They're looking at a midfield where certain players are aging, certain players have injury issues, where a lot of Premier League games are won and lost, and sometimes you need a real spark for midfield and a goal threat. And I think they look at Damsgaard and think he can be that goal threat. And if we put him in midfield with Norgaard as the six, and then either Jensen or Onyeka or Janelt. Now we've got a really nice balance. You've also seen this season, especially for Bre- uh, for Brentford, that um, what's the fellow's name? Josh De Silva has played more of a role this season compared to last year where he was injured injured. So, you know, you've got him and Damsgaard now as that those more attacking ones who can be more inventive and offer more of a spark going forward. Norgaard and Jensen and Onyeka and Janold, they're more defensive minded players and more I suppose facilitators, lads that set a platform for others to go and play off. So I just think What's, what's really special with them both as clubs is how patient they are, how diligent they are, and how confident they are in, in what they're doing. Like, there'll be no one within Brentford doubting that they did the right thing with Lewis Potter, Damsgaard, and Shade, even though this season they might not have gotten the rewards. Next season, all three of them will be fully acclimatised to the Brentford way of doing things. And I think next season we'll see all three of them do much, much better in terms of match involvements, goal contributions, and just general play. Um, Next up. If you were the owner of a football club, which team would you try and emulate? Brighton. Yeah, Brighton. I think they're the, I think they're the blueprint. If you had a teenage son, which five clubs around the world would you have as a shortlist in terms of ability to develop talent, the pathway to the first team and overall culture? Chelsea have the best academy in the world, but it's, it's too much of a, of a, like a meat packing factory. So they wouldn't be one. Brighton would be one for certain. Their academy's really kicked on the last couple of years. They've invested more money into it. Arsenal. I think the culture's great there. I think they've got the best core group of academy coaches in England. Um, in terms of coaches to players, the ratio is, is far superior to most others. I think Southampton's always been a good nurturing spot for young players. So they'd be my three from England. Outside Ajax, 
I just think it's it's always had that, hasn't it? It's always just had that wonderful approach to youth development. A lot of people might say Barca or Bayern, but again, I'm just thinking numbers wise. Like those academies are packed. I think PSV Eindhoven is where I'd look. You know, you look at some of the players that have come out of PSV in the last couple of seasons and just how impressive it's been. The way they continue to find uh, new talent within their own ranks and not having to constantly look abroad or elsewhere. Um, like, Daniel Mallon was at Ajax, went to Arsenal, was written off by Arsenal at 17. PSV bring him back, and within four years, he's leaving for a huge sum to go to, to Dortmund. So I think they've done really well with him as a reclamation project. You look at someone like Cody Gakbo, who's with them since he's eight years of age, and how well he's done. So just the entire academy process shines through there. Then you've got Noni Mudeki, came through the Tottenham Academy, moved to PSV at 16, almost like a finishing school for him. He was on a really good track, goes to them, they round out the rough edges of his game, and, and he leaves for big money in January. So you've got three different players there, with three different paths. One who was seemingly headed in the wrong direction. One who's had that nice, smooth path the whole way. And one who was on a really good trajectory and just needed the right tweaks to maximise ability. And in all three cases, PSV have done a great job. So, yeah, I think I'd say Ajax, PSV... Southampton, Brighton, and Arsenal would be the one big club. I'm not saying they have the best academy. I think they've got a great academy. But I think in terms of the coaching he'll get there, I think Arsenal are the one to look at. And they don't they don't bring in the huge swaths of numbers that, that Chelsea does. Uh, there's actually a fourth question here. What would be the all-time 11 from Reno, Pep, Klopp and Ferguson and who would win between them? Okay, um, I'm going to need to write these down because otherwise they could end up. I don't like writing things down, but I'm going to have to write these down. See what you're doing to me. Right, let's start with... We'll start with Pep. The best goalkeeper he's worked with is Manuel Nauer by a country mile. The best right back he's worked with, I think... You could argue it's Josh Kimmick, but I think we'll go with Danny Alves. Uh, I'm going to put Philippe Lam as the left back. No, I'm not actually. I'm just going to go David Alaba. Um, I was going to just try and sneak Lam in, but we'll go with Alaba. Uh, Carlos Puyo, and I think Ruben Diaz is probably second. I don't think Pep has worked with many great centre-backs. I think he's worked with a number of overrated centre-backs. He's made look like much better players than they are because of the emphasis of on-ball. But defensively, I think they're the two best. Um, the midfield is is an absolute nightmare to pick. 
Busquets has to be in because as good as Rodri is, Prime Busquets was just a different beast. As good as Gundogan is, it's got to be Iniesta. I think you've got to put Xavi in. Now, there's other options there. Kimmich would be one. Thiago, another. Gundogan could play that role. But I think that's it. And then we'll put KDB and Messi. Thierry Henry was a better player than Robert Lewandowski. But with KDB and Messi, I think you want Lewandowski. Now, there are going to be some crossovers because he's also going to be in Klopp's team. Now, Alves, Puyol, Diaz, Alaba, Xavi, Busquets, Iniesta, KDB, Messi, Lewandowski. I feel like I'm missing someone. These are loads of great players like it. Didn't even consider Leroy Sané, who was unbelievable under Pep. Um, those first couple of years didn't, didn't consider Bernardo Silva. Definitely not considering Boatang or PK. I'm happy with the back four. I'm happy with midfield. That's what I'm going to go with. That's the Pep 11. Um, we'll do Klopp next. Allison is obvious. Trent is obvious. It's easier for Pep for, for with Klopp. He's only had two two teams really because we're not putting anyone from Mines in. Uh, we're going to go with Robertson. We will go with, I suppose Hummels because the Hummels he had was much better than the Hummels that Pep tried to make into this Rolls Royce because he was a really good defender in the early days. Hummels and Virgil. Holding midfield, it's Fabinho. It's Fabinho over the likes of Sven Bender or Seb Kiel. Ilke Gundigan is next, so he's in. We're going to go Salah on the right. So it's a Fabinho Gundigan double pivot. Salah on the right. I'm playing Mane on the left. And I'm going to put Royce behind Lewandowski. Now the question is do I want Royce or do I want a third midfielder, third actual midfielder? Could be Nuri Sahin. Could go Ginny. Could go Thiago. Could go, no, couldn't go him. Um, Thiago's a better player than Marco Royce was. Gonna go Thiago. We'll leave Royce out. We'll go to front three. So midfield three, Thiago, Fabinho, Gundigan. 
uh, front three, Salah, Mane, either side of Lewandowski. Next up, we'll go for Jose. Uh, he had Petacek. And he had Casillas, but he didn't get on with Casillas. So we'll go Petacek. Uh, left back is going to be Ashley Cole. He managed Javier Zanetti. He did play him more often in midfield, but he's still Javier Zanetti, so he's going in as a right back. Ricardo Carvalho and Walter Samuel are going to be our two centre-backs. That's not a debate. Midfield. He had Makaleli. He had Cambiasso. Essien is going to be in. Without a shadow of a doubt. Essien was unbelievable. Um, Who else did he have? Manish. Balak. Quite drawn to that Chelsea midfield. Let me just see if there's any reason to... To go away from Inter Milan. Oh my ten. Julius Cesar is not getting in. Mycon was primarily his right back, but he had Javier Zanetti. Zanetti's getting in, and Zanetti was playing fifty games a season uh, in midfield for him, so he's getting in one way or another. Wes Schneider. Wes Schneider under Mourinho was was really special. Um, it's Stankovic. He was great. Wes Schneider, we're going to keep in our back pocket for a second. For Real. We're going to play Alonso as a deep-lying playmaker with Essien and God, Mesut also has to be in. I think I'm going to have have to put Mesut also in. I'm just wondering, is there any other midfielders that deserve... Sammy Kadir was pretty good under him. He had Kaka there, but Kaka had the thigh injury and wasn't as good. He did have Casemiro, but Casemiro didn't really play. They brought in Luka Modric for his last season, so I'm going to just put Luka Modric in. Um, Cristiano is obviously going to be in. Uh, I think Drogba has to be in. And I'm going to go Aryan Robin as the other wing, because when Robin went to Chelsea first, he was just ridiculous. So 
Czech, Zanetti, Carvalho, Samuel, Cole, Essien, Alonso, Modric, Robin, Drogba and Cristiano. Uh, Cristiano will obviously also be in the next team that we do, which is Ferguson. Uh, Ferguson's two best goalkeepers are Schmeichel and Van der Sar. I think Schmeichel was the better keeper. Uh, so we'll go with him. The two best fullbacks he had were both left backs, with Dennis Irwin and Patrice Evra. Irwin's the better left back, but Gary Neville's the best right back. He, well, he had Paul Parker for a long time in the early days. How long was Paul Parker there? Paul Parker was so underrated. Parker from 91 to 96. Neville, Neville had a better career than him. Let's, let's not pretend. Parker might have been a better player. Certainly a better defensive player. But Erwin and Ever are the two best centre-backs he had. They just are. So we're going to go with our. Is there anyone else pre pre Premier League? Clayton Blackmore. No, certainly not Lee Martin. Not having Mike feeling. I'm just going to go with Irwin at right back and and Everett left back. The two best centre backs who played under him were Yapstam and Paul McGrath. But the two best centre backs for United in his spell were Yapstam and Manjevic. McGrath and Stam is just a better pairing in terms of their skill sets. But Ferguson, it is worth pointing out, did shove Paul McGrath out the door. But we're, the question was, who are the best players to play from? These are the best players to play from. Uh, midfield, you build around Keenan Scholes. And he did for years. Up front, I'm going to go with Rooney and Ruud van Nistelrooy. I'm torn now because Cristiano has to be in. But do I put him in over Beckham or over Giggs? I think I put him in over Giggs. Giggs was so good in the early days. Giggs in the 90s was just... It was horrible when your team came up against them. Because you knew he was going to just absolutely tear you apart. But Beckham was so vital to those early teams. 
And Cristiano is more like Giggs in that he's a, a pace player who beat, could, could dribble and carry the ball. Whereas Beckham's passing was vital. I'm going to go with Beckham. See, what I could do here is play Giggs and leave out Rude. And that's actually what I'll do. Because not at United, but later in his career, Cristiano did become a nine. And I think if you had Beckham's crossing, Cristiano's going to score seven or eight a season just with his head. Same with Giggs. There's another four or five. Beckham's balls over the top, three or four. And then the link with Rooney. Yeah. Schmeichel, Irwin, McGrath, Stam, Evra. Beckham, Keane, Scholes, Giggs. Rooney, Cristiano. Um, who wins? The weakest of the four teams is probably Klopp's. I think Ferguson's team wins just, just over Pep's. Mourinho's is pretty special as well, though. And in a one-off game, I'd probably back Mourinho. For getting peak Mourinho versus peak Pep, I'll back Mourinho. But I'd back Ferguson over Jose. So I'll go with Ferguson to win. I'll actually say Mourinho second, Pep third, barely. Um, and Klopp, I think, is a bit of a distant fourth. I think Jurgen's got the best goalkeeper of the lot. Mm, to be fair, now our prime Peter Cech and prime Schmeichel are all absolutely amazing. Defensively, I mean, Mourinho's is unreal. But I think Ferguson's, Ferguson's is let down by Patrice Everett, who's who was very good, but not not great, great. Mourinho's probably got the best defence. Uh, midfield. The Barca three, the Barca trio are probably the best three-man midfield ever. But I, I think that United four is the best four-man midfield I've ever seen. Beckham, Keane, Scholes, Giggs. It had everything. And they worked so well together. And they were, they were together for a number of years, as were the, the Barca three. I think it's a coin toss between them. Up front, I mean, KDB and Messi behind Lewandowski is ridiculous. Uh, Salah, Lewandowski, Mane is ridiculous. Robin, Drogba, Cristiano is ridiculous. And Rooney and Cristiano is ridiculous. So it's pretty much a push. But I think Ferguson's stronger through the first three lines. Goalkeeper being one defence midfield. I, I'd go with Ferguson. Yeah, I'd go with Ferguson's team. Um, right, that's that one. Hope they're answered sufficiently. Uh, if not, there's not much I can really do because I've, I've given the answer now. Um, next question is from Nick Turner. With the modern game getting faster and more physical and players such as Trent, Haaland and Caicedo doing so phenomenally well at the age of 21-22, is it fair to say that the peak age of footballers is coming down from the generally accepted peak of 27-30 to 30 to something closer to 21-25? I actually think it's 23-27. to 27. I think they're the peak years of a player. And 
I think it has a lot to do with when you break through. It's not just that I think the peak is, is lowering. It's when players break through, that's what's lowering. We're seeing more and more 17 and 18-year-olds break into first teams now and play significant roles. And I always think players only have so much in their legs. There will obviously be exceptions to that rule. But I feel like if you start playing regularly at 18, you are going to be peaking about five to six years later. So kind of 23, 24. Whereas in years gone, players might not really have gotten a regular run in the team till they were 21, 22. So again, five years later, they're 27. For me, that's where that has come from. It's, it's, your peak, I think, and I, and I could be completely wrong, but I think your peak is directly linked to when you start. And if you break through at 22, your peak, I think, is going to be about 27. If you break through at 17, I think your peak is going to start at 22. Like, take a look at someone like David Beckham, who didn't really establish himself at Manchester United. And I'm only using Beckham because we were talking about him a second ago. Beckham kind of established himself at United when he was 2021. And I think Beckham peaked around 26, 27. Whereas you look at Ryan Giggs, who broke through at United and was a first team choice at 17, 18, I think Giggs peaked at around 22, 23. Now, he did have a lot of injuries. So some people will look at Giggs and say, well, I, I don't really see any kind of peak output or anything. But I think if you were there and watched Ryan Giggs play, I would say from about 97, 98 to about the end of the old 304 season, that's what I would place Ryan Giggs peak at. Now, it's quite a long peak. That's six seasons. But I think some players can sustain it. Now, what was amazing about Giggs is he played 10 years post-peak. Ryan Giggs played for Manchester United till he was 41. Well, he was 40. would have turned 41 later that year. He broke into the first team in 1990-91. 1990-91. The old first division. He played an entire season in the old first division. In 91-92, United finished second to Leeds. And then he was still there when Ferguson retired. He, he was there for the Moyes season. Ryan Giggs won 13 league titles. 13 league titles in a career that lasted 24 seasons? 5, 10, 15, 20, 24 seasons. 23, because if we, if we knock off the first, you only had two, uh, two appearances. 23 seasons. The last season he played 12. But for 22 straight seasons, Ryan Giggs played over 30 games. 
Like, there's been so few players that have been able to sustain it. And to do it at one club, I think, is really special. To play for that long at one club is really special. The only other one I can think of, and I'm sure people will will have others, but to play for over 20 seasons is Maldini. Maldini from the 85-86 season to the end of um, 08-09 was a regular for Milan. He had a couple of seasons that dropped below the 30-game the threshold, largely because of injuries as he got older, but I mean, even his last season there, he played 32 games. And the level he played at. Paolo Maldini didn't quite win the the 13 league titles, but he got seven of them. And while, you know, Giggs won two European Cups, Maldini won five. But I, I would say they both peaked earlier, but for whatever reason, Maldini especially was able to sustain it. I would argue Maldini's peak runs from probably 1990 through to about 2004. I'd argue he was undeniably world class for that length of time. Sensational. But yeah, I do think it's to do with when players are breaking through. Like, Rooney, as an example, broke through at 16. I think Rooney's peak started about 21-22. And he was definitely declining from 26-27 and after. Lukaku, the exact same thing. Romelu Lukaku broke through at Anderlecht at 16. And was a sensation in his early 20s. Because I think he peaked at like 21-22. Lukaku was born in 93. Lukaku's only 29. That's ridiculous. I would argue Lukaku's peak started at Everton. First season to Everton, first full season to Everton. He was there on loan. They buy him. He gets 20 and 48. Then 25 and 20. In 46, then 26 and 49. Goes to United 27 and 51. Um, now he did obviously have the resurgence at, um, at Inter, but Lukaku now at 29 has been poor for two years since he was 27. So if his peak was 21 to 27, that'd be about right, wouldn't it? I think peaks are a little bit longer now. But I do think they start earlier now. Um, what else do we got? What is the, what's your official description of a gammon and gravy player? A gammon and gravy player basically, and how it's, see, so you've asked how is it different to an agricultural player? An agricultural player for me is someone that makes the bones by kicking others up in the air. A gammon and gravy player is a player that runs a lot, has very little technical ability but gets lauded with phrases like model pro and never lets you down and does what the team needs him to do. That's a gammon and gravy player. Uh, a, a Premier League 11 of gammon and gravy. Luke Ayling, right back. These will mostly be English players. Um, well, British players. Um, I'm going to take a little bit of license here to just 
add in one or two. But Harry Maguire is a gammon and gravy centre-back. Very little technical ability. But because he plays the odd pass, people seem to think, oh, he's a ball-playing centre-back. Because he carries the ball every so often, and like the moon has a funky gravity and players bounce off him, people think he's a ball player. I'm going to go Maguire. Connor Cody is gammon and gravy, 100%. Uh, he can ping a pass to his credit. He's not very good at his job, which is defending. Um, left back. Dan Byrne. Dan Byrne. If he was six, if he was, if he was five foot seven, I don't think he'd be a professional footballer. Because he's six seven, I think he's, he's got physical advantages. Um, so Dan Byrne, Luke Ayling, Cody, Maguire, and Byrne. Goalkeeper. I'm going to go Pickford. This, this idea that he's a great ball-playing goalkeeper, not for me. Can boot at a mile, but no. Uh, midfield, Conor Gallagher's in there. Ward-Price is an amazing free kick taker, but he can't do anything else. He's an average passer of the ball. Can't dribble. Doesn't do anything. Uh, James Milner is gammon and gravy. And will complete the world's ugliest diamond midfield with Jordan Henderson. Brainless. Nothing but an engine. And once the engine left, badly exposed for the player that he is. Uh, so he's deep. We're going Gallagher and Milner box to box. And Ward-Prowse can be our 10. And we'll see what he does in open play. And then up front... Shane Long is no longer a Premier League player, I don't believe, but he would be the epitome of a gammon and gravy forward. Lots of running, lots of huff and puff. Very little in terms of blowing the house down. Um, but he's no longer in the division. So... I mean, Danny Ings is a bit, is a bit gammon and gravy as well. But Danny Ings has, has, it's, look, I suppose it's, it's more, are they, are they raised up and held up to levels that they're not capable of playing because of their passport as well? And Danny Ings absolutely is. If he was a foreign striker, he'd be looked at like Neil Mopé, not like he's Alan Shearer. Um, I'm just gonna put Danny Ings in because he, he bothers me. Um, who else would be a good striker here? Che Adams a little bit. I, I like Che Adams though. Oh, um, Kiefer Moore. Kiefer Moore. Yeah, I think I think Kiefer Moore is, a, and he's a bit agricultural as well. But we're going to go with Kiefer Moore. Um, so he's Welsh, isn't he? He's born in England, but plays for Welsh for Wales. So yeah, he he he's in. And our gammon and gravy manager, um, we'll just go with Frank. We'll go with Frank. Um, all of these strikers, this is Isaac Gilding, all of these strikers, I should point out Matt JT was the person who asked that last question. Um, all of these strikers were at the 2002 World Cup except Shearer and Cole. Do you think this list of 20 is better than the list you could make from the last couple, last couple of World Cups? Can you also put each of them into 
current Premier League teams, one each based on how well you think they fit and what the teams need. Uh, I'll have a go. Uh, right, we've got Henri, Ornain, Owen, Shearer, Fowler, Cole, Rivaldo, Forlan, Raul, Ronaldinho. Oh, sorry, strikers and attackers. Uh, Ronaldinho, Figo, Etu, Badastuta, Crespo, Larson, Suker, Del Piero, Totti, Kaka, and Inzaghi. Is that better than a list of 20 I could put together from the last couple of World Cups? I would say in terms of depth of talent, yeah. Um, I, I think there's more high-end talent there for certain. Now, I do think we've got obviously a couple of really special individuals over the last couple of World Cups, but I don't think we've got the, the numbers in depth. I do think that kind of l- mid to late nineties, probably starting with or nine and Wea through to, you know, mid-2000s, where kind of Henri was at the peak of his powers. I do think those are the kind of golden years of the attacker in from the last 40 years or so. And I know people will say, oh, well, goal numbers are up now. Of course they are. Of course they are. The quality, quality of defenders is down. And the rules have been changed. It's a non-contact sport now. These lads were getting booted up in the air. Doesn't happen now. Everything is more suited to the attacking player. The rules have been so drastically skewed to enable more goals because people have short attention spans and don't want to watch a tactical battle that might end in a 1-0 win or a 0-0 draw. They'd rather watch a game that ends 6-5 and is comically poor in terms of quality and defensive work, but had lots of goals. The casual you know, the casual fella who might flick on a game once in a while would rather watch that than, say, football fans that would rather watch a high-quality, highly thought-out game. Um, so the, the rules were skewed accordingly. Um, right, each of these in a Premier League team. Uh, in Zaggy, I'm going to start from the bottom and work up. In Zaggy, I would put a Chelsea. They've got lots of creators. They need someone that can put the ball in the net. That's him. Doesn't do anything else. But he puts the ball in the back of that. So I'll go with him. Kaka, Liverpool. With the new shape that they're playing. As the right side at eight. Playing where Liverpool have wasted on Jordan Henderson for years. Kaka's 20 goals, 15 assists. Easily every season. It's, it's criminal to me how overlooked he is. He was the best player in the world between Ronaldinho and Messi. He was special. And if not for the injuries and then the loss of form and the, I think the loss of desire, uh, he, he would have continued at that level. Um, Francesco Totti. He would have been great in the Firmino role in the old Liverpool front three. I think he'd be special in the Arsenal front three instead of Jesus as a, as a false nine. So I'll go with him. Him there at Arsenal. Del Piero, Newcastle. Newcastle. Cutting in from the left where they've got the more pacey option on the right. Old school Del Piero when he played with Ravinelli and, and Viali. Played off the left in a front three, cut in field and was lethal. Del Piero to Newcastle. Uh, Davor Sucre. 
natural finisher, great goal scorer, and a scorer of great goals. I'm tempted to say Brighton because of all the chances that they create. I'll say Brighton. Henrik Larsson, Brentford, playing all five in Tony, 25 a season easy. Hernan Crespo, Wolves. Movement in the box, spring, great in the air, great finisher, Wolves. Uh, Badastuta. Anybody. Play for anybody. But. Do you know Southampton? Because Badastuta was brilliant on the counter attack. And Saints in Mara and Suleimana could be a lethal counter attacking team. So I'll go with Southampton. Um, Eto. Everton. Him off Calvert-Lewin, I think, would work. Figo. Aston Villa. Aston Villa. Creativity. Crossing ability. Play both sides, so you'd think of the Emi Buendia role. Figo would be unbelievable in that role. Uh, Ronaldinho. Spurs. Spurs, as, as the creator that they need. Ronaldinho. Uh, Raul. Oh. Leeds. No. No, not Leeds. Not Leicester. Not Palace. Fulham. Fulham. Raul off Mitrovic. Yeah, that's what I'd go with. Raul off Mitrovic for Fulham. Um, Diego Forlan. Bournemouth. They need more movement in the box and someone that can get his shot away quickly. And a, a volume shooter, so full, uh, Bournemouth for Forlan. Rivaldo. Man City. Rivaldo at Man City coming in off the right onto his left foot. Yeah, that's who I'd go with. Uh, Andy Cole. West Ham. Cole and Skimaka, I think, would work. I'll go with that. Robbie Fowler, I'm going to say Leeds. Robbie Fowler, I'll say Leeds. Alan Shearer is Manchester United because they need a back to goal number nine. They can hold things up and bring others in. So we'll go with him. Michael Owen. Michael Owen. Leicester. 
Leicester need to need a poacher. Need someone that can run in behind. Vardy was similar to Owen at his peak, with that ability to run in behind and be an outlet. I'm getting young Owen here, I assume, so that's what I'm taking. Um, or nine, and Thierry Henry are who I'm left with then. And I think the clubs I'm left with are Forest and Palace. Well, I think Henri would suit Forrest. If you play a front two, you got him and Brennan Johnson, both able to split wide. One prefers the right, the other prefers the left. Look, Henri could play for anybody, but I've gone the way I've gone, and he's ended up at Nottingham Forest. And that means the Crystal Palace are getting Ronaldo, the real Ronaldo. And he's going to be getting service from Eberichi Eze and Michael Elise, and he's scoring 87 goals a season. So, there you go. Uh, last question, AMK2889. All-time rivalry 11. For every player selected, you have to select a player from a rival club in the opposite position or to partner a selected player in defence, midfield, or up front. For example, I'd imagine you'll pick Maldini at left-back so Zanetti could be your right-back. You would be right. Uh, that is exactly what I would pick. Um, in midfield, I'll take Roy Keane, so I'll take Patrick Vieira next to him. Um, on the wings, I will take David Beckham on the right, so I can get Robert Perez on the left. I think that's a good one. I'm happy with that one. Up front, I'll take I'll take Henri and then have Van Nistelrooy. So I want Henri. I get Van Nistelrooy. So I need centre-backs. Goalkeeper, I'll just pick someone that has a beef with somebody else. Um, centre-backs. If I take Van Dijk, I get Diaz. That'll work. Yeah, I'll take that. Because that's a, that's a decent rivalry. Um, I could take... No, you know what I'll take. Uh, I think this is what I'm going to do. Hmm. No. No, that's what I'll do. I'll take, um, If I take Nesta from Milan, I can take Turam or Cannavaro from Juve. I'll take Turam. So Zanetti. Turam. Nesta. Maldini. And since I've gone with a, an all Serie A-based back four, I'll take Buffon in goal because he was at Juve, which means he was a rival with Nesta, both at Lazio and at Milan. He was a rival with Maldini and he was a rival with Zanetti. So yeah, I'll take, um, I'll take Buffon. Keenan Vieira midfield is a no-brainer. 
If I have Zanetti, I don't need Beckham. If I take Figo, I could take Ronaldinho. Because they'd have been at, Ma at Madrid and... Mm, no, I won't do that. Madrid and Barca, but no. Um, I do like the idea of Perez, but I have Zanetti. I don't need Beckham. I think. If I take Messi, I can take Cristiano, can't I? So there's my wingers. So I'll go Messi, right wing, Cristiano, left wing. And then... Do I really want Ruud van Nistelrooy? Hmm. If I take or nine, I'm pretty certain I can have Raul. Raul would have been in the Real first team when or nine was at Barca. 95-96, I want to say. Ninety-six, ninety-seven. 96, 97. So yeah, Raul was there and he was lethal that season. So yeah, I'll take Raul and or 9 up front. I'll take Messi and Cristiano as the wingers. Keenan Vieira, best of luck lads, a lot of work to do, but no one's scoring on that defence, so it's fine. Uh, so that's what I've got. Right, we'll get out of here on the gossip. We've gone much longer than uh, I had planned today, which is my fault, but it's actually your fault for sending questions. Uh, Manchester United are prepared to offer Erling Haaland a new deal to ward off bids from around Europe. Okay. Haaland is set to discuss a contract extension, but his current deal no longer includes a release clause. I don't believe that to be true. I don't for one second believe that Pep signing a new deal somehow took a release clause out of Haaland's deal. Uh, Chelsea have decided against pursuing Luis Enrique and will instead turn their attention to Maurizio Pochettino. Former Bayern Munich boss Julian Nagelsmann impressed during initial talks with Chelsea and is seen as the likeliest candidate. The Blues' decision to snub Enrique will clear a path to Tottenham for Tottenham to appoint him. Don't really like him for Tottenham, but, you know, it is what it is. Some of Chelsea's players will see their wages reduced by at least 30% with the club set to miss out. I don't know how true that is. I'd imagine maybe the players pre-Todd Bowley's spending spree. But I bet the others don't, because Bowley didn't know anything about it. Uh, Manchester United are interested in Jeremy Frimpong while trying to offload Aaron Wambasaka and Diogo Delo. Diogo Delo's had a good season. I don't know why he's one they want rid of. Uh, Barcelona would not be able to sign Lionel Messi... <laughs> Because of their current financial situation, says La Liga president Javier Tabas. 
West Ham have identif- identified Lille's Paolo Fonseca as a potential replacement for David Moyes. Oh, I don't really like that for Fonseca. Good squad, though. Maybe, maybe. Arsenal could sell following Balogun to Orby Leipzig in the summer to help fund their move for Declan Rice. That would make sense. Uh, Real Madrid and France forward Karim Benzema has signed a one-year extension at Real. Uh, Rafael Leao says he wants to stay at the San Siro, despite interest from Man City. That's fair enough. Ryan Gravenbutch or somebody Liverpool looking at. That's, that's kind of common knowledge. Manchester United and Newcastle United are interested in Sporting Lisbon and Portugal defender Goncalo Inacio. I think a number of clubs are in for him. West Ham could suffer a mass exodus with Manuel Lanzini, Angelo Ogbonna, Vladimir Kufal, Aaron Cresswell, Pablo Fornals, and Thomas Suchek set to follow Declan Rice at the door. The only player there they'd miss is Pablo Fornals. They'd be better off if all the rest of them left because they've all been garbage this season. And none of them can run anymore, bar him. So that'll be fine. Uh, Tony Cruz could sign a new deal with Real despite reports he might retire. I think he'll stick around another year. Chelsea could offload either or both Eduard Mendy and Kepa in order to sign Gregor Kopal. Uh, good keeper. Yeah, for sure. An upgrade on the, the, the lads that they have. Uh, Ilke Gundigan says he must assess if his bodies is up to another, to the rigors of another season. He's going. He, he's, he's leaving. He's telegraphing this. Chelsea are interested in a move for Levi Colwell, who is impressed on loan. He, he'd fit really well in the back three. That's, so yeah, I don't believe it to be true, but he's, he'd fit really well in the back three. Right. That's me. Talk to you tomorrow. Take care. Bye bye. Podcast Network.